we continue our study this morning of the roots of the Redeemer. This is the fourth sermon in that series of the introductions to or genealogies of Jesus in the four Gospels, considering John's introduction to Jesus this morning. With an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a very short, simple Greek lesson, and some quotations from some very familiar Christmas carols. Starting with the Old Testament lesson, you heard a bit of it already this morning as the candle was being lit. This is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, page 558 in your pew Bibles if you wish to follow along. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to respect the wrong and choose, reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And now from the Gospel of John, the famous first chapter, the first 18 verses, pages, page 860 in your pew Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him, all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, 
This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. It was a simple little word to them, if not to us. I-C-H-T-H-U-S. Ichthus. You could say that word just about anywhere, and nobody would think anything of it. Ichthus. Fish. So what? Maybe an odd kind of a greeting. Maybe a strange password, but harmless. And you didn't even have to really say it. You could paint it on your wall. And some of them did. You could scratch it in the sand with your walking stick. And some of them did. You could trace it in the air with your finger. And some of them did. What was it about ichthus fish? Well, it was a testimony. A testimony of faith. In a single word. In a painting on a wall. Or a scribble in the sand. Or a tracing in the air. Because ichthus was not just a word, it was also an acronym. And that's why and how it became a testimony. I was in Turkey once, visiting the churches of Revelation. And we were in Istanbul for a few days, and they had a big street fair downtown. And we went, and one of the booths sold plates, just simple plastic dinner plates that were blank in the middle. And the proprietor of the booth said, if I bought one, he'd put anything on it that I wanted. And somebody who was with me offered to buy that for me. And I thought to myself, now what in the world would I put on it? And I don't know to this day why it came to me, but I thought of putting ichthus on it. And then I tried in my English to explain to this Turkish salesman in, who did not understand English how to put ichthus on a plate. And this is what he came up with. A fish on the water and the body of the fish spelled ichthus. It's been on a shelf in my office ever since as a kind of a, a testimony to me of what the early Christians did. And, and now for that brief Greek lesson, because ichthus was not just a marine creature, 
It was a testimony and an acronym. The first letter in the word, the Greek letter iota, is also the first letter in Jesus, which is our word, Jesus. The second letter is ki, which is the first letter in the Greek word Christos, which is Christ. The third letter is theta, which is the first letter in the Greek word for God. That's the possessive form of the noun God, which in English would be God apostrophe S. Upsilon is the fourth letter, and it's the first letter in the Greek word huios, which is the word for son. And the final letter is sigma, the first letter in the Greek word soter, which is our word savior. Yota, ki, theta, upsilon, sigma, ichthus, fish. But whether you painted it on a wall or drew it in the sand or traced it in the air or whispered it in an alley, it meant I am a Christian, saved by the blood of the only begotten Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And they put it into an acronym, not to be clever or concise, but because to say what's on the screen right now was to risk being arrested and executed, maybe on the spot. But everyone who knew what the fish was all about knew that that symbol and belief in what it stood for was the only way to live. Ichthus. Greek to you, but it was really their way of saying something we put into song this way. Hail, the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail, the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die. Born to raise the lost on earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Doesn't sound much like a genealogy, does it? Doesn't sound like Matthew's, doesn't sound like Luke's, but it was a genealogy of sorts. It detailed Jesus' parentage, and ours, for that matter. And you could say it all with a word, ichthus. And you could see it all in a picture of a fish. Here's the gracious mystery of Advent and Christmas. The NIV puts it this way, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. J.B. Phillips put it this way, so the word of God became a human being and lived among us. 
The Amplified Bible has, and the word, Christ, became flesh, human, incarnate, and tabernacled, fixed his tent of flesh, lived a while among us. But perhaps the message put it best. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. We sing it this way. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with us to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. When we sing that song, do we know what we're saying? Have we listened to ourselves? Do we understand what those words mean? And much more importantly, do we believe it? Frederick Beekner, a famous Presbyterian preacher, preached a sermon on Christmas once entitled simply, Emmanuel. And in it he said, For we preach Christ crucified, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He could as well have written, we preach Christ born, or we preach Christmas, because the birth presents no fewer problems than the death does. Christmas is not just Scrooge waking up the next morning a changed man. It's not just the spirit of giving abroad in the land with a white beard and reindeer. It's not just the most famous birthday of them all, and not just the annual reaffirmation of peace on earth that is often redu- it is often reduced to so that people of many faiths or no faith can exchange Christmas cards without a qualm. On the contrary, if you do not hear in the message of Christmas something that must strike some as blasphemy and others as sheer fantasy, the chances are you haven't heard the message for what it is. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The commentator William Barclay said of that sentence, Here we come to the sentence for the sake of which John wrote his gospel. It might well be held that this is the greatest single verse in the New Testament. A lifetime of study and thought could not exhaust the truth of this verse. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God we're talking about. This is Emmanuel, God with us. The God who created all and owns all and cares for all and who owns all power and to whom all praise is due. This God became flesh and blood and made his dwelling among us. And wherever you see him, in a manger, 
or in a carpenter's shop, or in a garden, or on a cross. You see God, the one and only. Maybe the only way to get our faith around it, at least a little ways, is to sing it. Though an infant, now we view him. He will share his father's throne. Gather all the nations to him. Every knee shall then bow down. Worship Christ, the newborn king. In those days, the days when Augustus Caesar was emperor of Rome, the days when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, the days when Joseph went up from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In, in those days, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. There, in a manger, in a cow's food trough, lies the word made flesh. There, under the glassy-eyed stare of a cud-shoeing cow, or the indifference of a donkey, or the bleating of a sheep, who could have stepped on him while he lay there and crushed him without even realizing what they had done, who could have tipped over his primitive bed easily and hurt him seriously. There lies the one whom Moses heard say that to see him was to die. We probably have little manger scenes in our home, much like the one I showed the kids this morning. Cute, curious, curios. And we're familiar with them. But when you stop to think about it, the last place on earth you'd ever want a human being to be born, let alone a god, Frederick Buechner, in that sermon I quoted from earlier, also said, for those who believe in the transcendence and total otherness of God, it radically diminishes him. For those who do not believe in God, it is the ultimate absurdity. For those who stand somewhere between belief and unbelief, it challenges credulity in a new way. Year after year, the ancient tale of what happens is told raw, preposterous, holy. And year after year, the world in some measure stops to listen. If it's true, it's the chief of all truths. If it's not true, it is of all truths the one, perhaps, that people would most want to be true if they could make it so. How shall we describe it? How shall we think about it? How shall we even try to understand it? John writes simply but profoundly, <clears throat> the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. 
the one who was and is and is to come, becoming. The one who conceived the world, conceived in it. The one who was there in the beginning, beginning. The one who gave life to everything being given life. God in utero. God growing, developing, gestating, maturing. The everywhere present God making himself microscopic and growing from there. The creator of all becoming the creature in one. The all-powerful God lying on hay, helpless. Should we even talk this way? The all-knowing God being taught. The word, learning words. And I wouldn't even dare say this out loud if Paul hadn't said it first. The sinless one becoming sin. The all-merciful God at the mercy of an adolescent girl and her frightened fiancé and a business-minded innkeeper and a vicious king by the name of Herod. The one whose eye is on the sparrow coming into this world practically unseen. I can't put it more controversially and accurately than Paul. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, he tented here with us. God's one and only set up temporary residence here on his way to providing permanent residence for us. God's one and only came here for a while so we could go there forever. They said it long ago with a picture, a fish, on a wall, in the sand, in the air. We say it in a song. See the lamb so long expected comes with pardon down from heaven. Let us haste with tears of sorrow, one and all, to be forgiven. So when next he comes in glory and the world is wrapped in fear, he will shield us with his mercy and with words of love draw near. Now if what we have just heard is true and what we believe, then how could John go on to say and how can we actually believe that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Can the father of the one and only, the only begotten, have other children? 
Can you and I be brothers and sisters to Jesus, the only begotten? And God's amazing answer is yes. Children of God. God's begotten ones, born of God, born again. And now his children. Good Christian friends rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye hear of endless bliss. Jesus Christ was born for this. He has opened heaven's door. And we are blessed forevermore. Calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save to all who received him, who believed in his name. That's more than knowledge. That's invitation. To receive him is to take him in. It is to invite him to come into your life, to give him your heart and soul and life as an offering of gratitude that you spend the rest of your life giving to him. And singing, again, may just be the only way we can really try to capture the essence of that. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift was given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. The same John who wrote this gospel wrote a letter to the churches later on, and in it he said, How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. And what we will be has not yet been made known. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. We're becoming. We are the becomers. We know whose we are and who we are, but what we shall be has not yet been made known. And so while we become, we sing. And while we sing, we pray. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Amen. O holy child, of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Amen. <laughs>